Good evening, Newark, and welcome back once again to our Wednesday night live Bible study. I'm so glad to be with you here tonight. And as you know by now, we are going to go ahead and jump in with our regularly scheduled program. If you are following along with us tonight is Wednesday, August 26, 2020. And we're doing our live Bible study as we typically do. So as you watch along, if you are signed into your Facebook or YouTube channels, you are welcome to submit questions as we go along, our comments and thoughts. Our executive assistant, Joyce Allen, is standing by. She'll be looking at all of those comments and questions, and she will join me at about 7.30, and we'll go ahead and work our way through those questions. Now, before we turn to our Bible study topic for tonight, I also want to give a quick general announcement to our church. As you know, we are at the end of August, and coming into September, we needed to decide what we're doing with our small groups. For the month of September, our small groups are going to continue to meet in an online format. You will be getting an information email from me before the end of tonight with more details about the meeting IDs because they're going to be different, password, etc. We're going to continue to meet on Zoom. Now, these meetings are open to anyone, and here's what we're going to do. Our first and third week of the month, the first and third week of September, will be our Bible study format. And it's going to be bi-weekly, much like we have done pre-COVID when we had our regular small groups and their Bible studies. The second and the fourth week before what we had done was something like a small group connect. The pastoral team met at length on Sunday and talked about this. We realized that Many of you have had lots of changes in your job schedule. School is starting again. For some of our parents, school is starting in a brand new way they've never had to deal with before with an online format and lots of parental input, especially for younger kids. And so what we are going to do, and we're doing this for the month of September, we have not made any decisions for October, is the first and third weeks of the month, we're going to do a Bible study. The second and the fourth week of the month, we will not, hear me, we will not have evening small groups at 7 p.m. We will have small group at 10 a.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays, those second and fourth, uh, the second and fourth weeks of the month. Those small groups will be open for anyone who's available, whether or not you normally attend a morning small group. If you would like that connect format, some of you have enjoyed it, some of you have not as much, some of you have been able to make it, some of you, your work schedules, kids' schedules, school schedules, etc., have not permitted as much time. So do know that if you are available on a Tuesday or a Thursday at 10 a.m., it's wide open to anyone. On that call, we will not be doing a Bible study, but we will be taking prayer requests and checking on each other. We'll probably have some discussion questions, much like we've had in previous months. It's just a chance for the church community to connect together. I strongly encourage all of you to join us on the first and third weeks of the month in September as we will be doing our regularly scheduled Bible study. More information will be available to you later tonight once we get out an email. Now let's turn to tonight's broadcast. If you've been following along, you'll know that this entire week we've been talking about this idea of the balance of kindness and honesty. Both kindness and honesty are core key principles here at Newark. If you've been around us in Newark UPC for any length of time, you know that being kind to each other, being kind to the stranger, being kind to the guest, being kind to anyone we interact with is a key value to our church family. But along with that, so is honesty. If you've been around any length of time here, you've heard us talk before about the importance of truth and that truth bows to no one. That's a favorite expression of Pastor Stephen. You'll hear us talk about the idea that we stand on the word of God and we turn to scripture for our instruction. We've if you've been with us in previous times, we've done Bible studies. We did a whole small group series talking about culture versus Bible and how culture is not necessarily wrong. That's not what I'm saying, but culture must bend to the truth of Scripture. And if there's something in Scripture that's different than a cultural practice, then Scripture wins out. If there's something in culture that's upheld and it says this is the way it must be, but we don't find that in Scripture, then we don't hold to that piece of culture. We don't say it must be that way. So honesty, or you could say truth, is extremely important around here at our church. And we take that honesty and we take those truths directly from the word of God. Now, here's the tricky part. 
And this is something that all of us struggle with at different points in our life, if not our entire life. And it's very, very difficult to get this right. We must find the balance of honesty and kindness. We are called from scripture to do both things. Doing both things well and doing both things at the same time, though, is much easier said than done. If you think about it, you can all think of times when you have been honest or someone has been honest with you. Perhaps they commented on an outfit that you were wearing. Perhaps they commented on your performance on fill-in-the-blank subject, whatever it may be, something that you've performed, something you've done. Maybe it was a coworker, or maybe it was a parent or a sibling, a peer, a friend, and they made some observations about how well you did at fill-in-the-blank. And perhaps they were very honest about it but it wasn't very kind. In fact, sometimes it's just blunt, if not downright crude. And what they're saying may be true, but the way they've delivered that information was not kind at all. We can all think of times when people have been honest with us, but they have not been kind. On the flip side, we can probably all think of times where someone has been kind to us, or let's personalize it even more. We've been kind to other people and they asked us our opinion. What do you think of this outfit? Or how does this make me look? Or they asked you what you thought of fill in the blank food you just tried or fill in the blank activity you just did with them. Or what do you think about, and you know, they showed you some uh, creative project that they've been involved in. And your thought internally was something like, oh, I can't stand that, or that looks terrible, or that's ugly, or whatever it may be, or oh, that's terrible. I would never want to eat something like that again. But instead, you smile, and in an effort to be kind, you say something like, oh, that, that, that's nice, or mm, thank you. Wow, that was great. And you're trying to be kind to someone, but you're not being honest. As you begin to think about your interactions with other people, oftentimes it seems like we're almost forced into these two poles where we're either honest with someone and it comes at the expense of being kind in the way we present it, or we're really kind to someone and it comes at the expense of being honest with ourselves and with them as to what's happening. And both of those extremes, if we think of honesty over here on one side and kindness over here on the other side, both of those extremes are not good. We cannot be honest at the expense of being kind. That ceases to be Christian. Hear me, that ceases to be Christian. But likewise, we can't be kind at the expense of not being honest because that's not being Christian either. The scripture calls us, and the examples we're given, is to find that middle ground, which is so much easier to say than it is to actually do, where we are both kind and honest together. And I will tell you up front, I believe the only way that this can truly operate in your life when you deal with other people, especially people who are not Christians, people outside the household of faith, people who are not fellow believers, and they do not come from the same moral framework and biblical understanding that you do, the only way that you're going to find this balance of honesty and kindness is through the direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that look like? Rather than me just trying to pull something out of the air, we are very blessed that we have scriptural examples of where we find this nexus, this crossing point, where honesty and kindness come together. And no one in scripture, absolutely no one in scripture, demonstrated this better than Jesus Christ himself. In fact, I'm not going to go through a whole bunch of examples tonight. My plan is to work through two different examples. If you start thinking about the way that Jesus interacted with people around him, especially the marginalized, the outsider, the foreigner, the sinner, the publican, the people of ill repute, what you will see over and over and over is that Jesus was incredibly kind and gracious to these people who were on the fringes. And yet, at the same time, while he was kind to them, he was also honest with them. He did not mislead them. He did not skirt around the edge of truth. He called things bluntly what they were, and somehow he managed to do this while still being kind to him. Jesus was a truth teller, 
so was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist drew large crowds like Jesus. And a lot of people were very frustrated with John the Baptist. We find in John, we find in the Gospels that John the Baptist, you know, had no problem calling people out as vipers and snakes and you liars and you people with a whitewashed sepulcher. You look all pretty on the outside, but on the inside, it's full of dead, rotting corpses and bones and this rough language. John was very good at being honest and scripture records his behavior. I don't honestly know if it fully endorses it as an example saying, hey, this is how we should be. But John wasn't necessarily kind with what he said. And yet with Jesus, we find him being honest, really, really direct with people, but also kind. And it's the sinner. It's the outsider. It's the foreigner. It's the marginalized people who are flocking to Jesus, who feel comfortable around him, who want to meet him, who want to talk to him. And so let's turn to a few examples tonight from the scripture. I'm going to take my two main examples, both out of the Gospel of John, and we're going to see two examples of where Jesus was both honest and kind someone. If you're following along with me in scripture, you can turn to the Gospel of John, and let's start in John chapter 4, and I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. I am using Bible Gateway tonight. And Bible Gateway is a free online tool that you can use. And in this online tool, it lists scripture passages, and you can find it in a bunch of different translations. There's no cost to you at all to use this. I highly recommend this. If you're looking for Bible language software that's free and easy to use, all you need is an internet connection, and you can go to BibleGateway.com. I'm going to be reading now the New Living Translation tonight. And let's jump into this very well-known story in John chapter 4 of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Reading out of the New Living Translation, it says, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and he was taking more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. And so he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. Judea's in the south, Galilee is in the north. You can think of them kind of like counties. Think of Judea as a county at the southern end of Israel, Galilee as the county at the northern end of Israel. And right in the middle of the land of Israel, the middle county, if you will, is Samaria. And devout Jews would avoid Samaria. They did not like going through that area because the Samaritans were a mixed ethnic group of both Jews and people that had settled in the land after the two exiles, particularly the Babylonian exile. And so this mixed ethnic group of people observed some of the commandments of the law, but not all of it. And they worshiped in their own temple, not in the temple in Jerusalem. And they kept to the Pentateuch, but they didn't keep to all of the laws, and they certainly didn't recognize the prophets. And so the Jews did not like them. They saw them as inferior. They saw them as half-breeds. They saw them as people who were not upholding the law correctly. And a lot of times they would avoid them altogether. They wouldn't want to go through Samaria. They would cross over to the eastern side of the Jordan River, climb up the eastern side of the Jordan River, completely bypass Samaria, cross the river again a second time to get back into Galilee. But look what John 4.4 says. He had to go through Samaria on the way. And eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at that time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. If you're not aware of a few cultural clues here, John is setting up a very, very odd story. Number one, Jesus is alone with a woman. Not a good thing in their culture. Number two, Jesus is alone with a Samaritan woman. Strike two. This is a woman who's not a proper two, uh, Jew. The Samaritan woman is at an odd place because she's coming to draw water in the middle of the day at noon. That's not when you go to draw water. You go early in the day, in the cool of the day, or you go late in the day as we're getting towards dusk in the evening. And often it was a collective activity where the women of the town would go together to draw water. Here, this woman comes in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, and she has come alone. So before you even read about their interaction, you see something is very odd here. Verse 9, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. 
She said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? So you can notice she's probably a little miffed at the way Jesus has responded because he said, I've got something better for you. If you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. Now, Jesus, you'll notice, doesn't apologize. Verse 13, Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water and then I'll never have to be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Now, here's a hint. She doesn't want to come to this well. She's coming to the well alone in the middle of the day. Verse 16, Jesus says, go and get your husband. Verse 17, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you're not even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the place of worship? while we Samaritans claim it's here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation is through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, and so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Verse 26. Now, I'm going to stop right there. The story continues to go on, but I just wanted to point out, even in the first half of this story, some pretty incredible things that are going on. Jesus is alone with this woman. This woman is coming to the well at the wrong time of day, and everything about the scenario screams something's wrong. She's a Samaritan. She's in Samaria where he doesn't belong. She's a woman with a bad reputation. He's a man who's alone with her. He's talking to her by a well. And then basically from our perspective, it looks like he insults her several times. He asks her for a drink. And then once she starts a conversation with him, he said, lady, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink. And so she responds and basically says, do you think you're better than our ancestors? And he continues to talk to her about why his water is better. Then she asks him a different question about where they should worship. And he says, nope, nope, you got it wrong. I'm sorry, you don't know what you're talking. What? He doesn't say, well, actually, there's a, no, he just says you're wrong. Salvation comes from the Jew. You people don't even know what you're doing. You don't even know how to worship correctly. In their conversation, she says, give me some of this water. And he says, oh, I'll give you some. Go get your husband. And her response is, well, I, I'm not married. She's kind of deflecting the question. And Jesus' response is, well, you're right. You're not married. In fact, you've been married five times, and the guy you're shacking up with now, you're not even married to. I mean, by all cultural expectations, even today, this story sounds crazy because it sounds like he's insulting this woman over and over and over, and yet she continues to interact with him. He doesn't call her an immoral woman. He doesn't say, you adulteress but he doesn't hide from the truth. He doesn't skirt around the fact that she's had five different husbands and she's on man number six and she's just living with him. They're not even married at this point. He doesn't hide or skirt around the fact that what she's doing worship wise and her understanding of God and her understanding of church is limited and incorrect. He even tells her, you, you don't know what you're doing. In fact, salvation comes from the Jews. They've got it right. 
But then he turns it around and he says, but don't worry, there's a time coming very soon where it doesn't matter if you worship on this mountain or in that mountain, if you're at this temple or that temple, that's not even what's important. And there's something about Jesus, and I got to read between the lines a little bit, and so do you, but she hasn't started a fight. She hasn't thrown an insult at him. She hasn't left. She continues to engage with him. So there is something about this Jesus and his kindness to her that keeps drawing her in. And then the most amazing thing, and all of the Gospel of John happens right here. In fact, it's not unique to John. It's the most amazing thing as far as Jesus interacting with someone in all four Gospel accounts. She said, I know Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And the only, hear me, the only recorded time in all of the Gospels where Jesus looked at someone and flat out directly said to them, I'm him. I am the guy you're looking for. I am the Messiah. Is right here with this adulterous Samaritan woman who he should not be talking to according to cultural rules. Sitting beside a well in a land that he doesn't belong at the wrong time of day. And as these people are alone, Jesus and this woman, as he directly confronts about her ignorance over where is the proper place to worship and her immoral behavior as she's on man number six and she's not even married to him. It's to this woman that he directly says, I'm the Messiah. The most explicit statement of who he is in all of the Gospels happens right here with this lady. He says, I'm the one you're looking for. And you can read through the rest of the story. You can tell it's awkward because as you read and we don't have time, you can look at the disciples when they come back and they come to talk to Jesus. And they don't really know what to say because they just found him alone with this woman and they're not sure what to do. And the woman runs back into town and gets a whole bunch of people. The same woman who was hiding around who she was, oh, I'm not married, is the same one who now runs back to town and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. He knows all about me. And she's excitedly telling these people. She's excitedly evangelizing her own town based on her shame, saying, this guy knows all about me, and he spoke truth to me, and yet she wants everyone to come interact with him. Jesus was not ugly. Jesus was not derogatory. Jesus did not insult her. Jesus did not say she was stupid. But he did tell her, you're missing some things. He did call her when she lied to him, in essence, skirting around the truth, oh, I'm not married. And his response was, yeah, that's right, you're not. You've been married five times, and the man you're with now, you're not even married to. He didn't skirt around it. He was a truth teller in that woman's life, and yet she was drawn to him. We, through the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit, can interact with people and tell the truth while still being kind about it. Let's go ahead and look at one more example, also out of the Gospel of John. We're going to jump forward to John chapter 8. And here's another well-known story. I'm going to share my screen again. We're going to go to John chapter 8, reading out of the New Living Translation. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. And a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Now, for all you adults, I want you to think about this. They caught her in the act of adultery, very compromising position. And the implication is that when they drag her to Jesus, they have not done much, if anything, to make her compromised situation look any better. This is all about publicly shaming this woman and embarrassing Jesus and catching him off guard. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says stone her. What do you say? Here we go. Law says do this. What do you think we should do? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So this goes on for some time. They keep pestering him. They, verse 7, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, all right. 
but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, which is interesting. So I don't know what Jesus was writing in the dirt. We don't know. But something shameful enough, something truthful enough about these accusers that they didn't even want to stand with him, starting with the oldest. Until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd. There's a bunch of people watching this. This is in the temple grounds. There's thousands of people milling about. And quite a crowd has stopped to watch Jesus in this interaction. And here he is in the middle of this circle, if you can imagine with me, all these onlookers. And Jesus and this woman, probably in a very compromised position, in the middle of a crowd. Only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman. And Jesus stood up again. So he still stooped down in the dirt writing. So he stands up and he looks at the woman and he says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Don't miss this part. Go and sin no more. There's a whole lot in this story and we don't have time to unpack all of it. But here this woman has been caught. Jesus does not make excuses for her behavior. Jesus did not say what she was doing was acceptable. Jesus did not apologize to the woman and say, I'm so sorry, you're embarrassed. Jesus did not apologize for the woman to the crowd. He didn't deny her shameful act. He didn't try to cover it up. He didn't make her shameful act any less than it had already been. But you understand this woman is about to face mob justice and their plan is to kill her right then. She knows that her life is over. And this Jesus intervenes on her behalf. And in his intervention, he does not lessen the magnitude of what she has done that's wrong. He does not excuse her behavior. He simply says, where are your accusers after he's dismissed them? And then he says, I don't condemn you. Notice he didn't say that I don't see anything wrong with your behavior. He said, I'm not going to condemn you. In other words, I'm not going to throw a stone. I'm not here to destroy you today. And that's a wonderful story about love and compassion and forgiveness and mercy. But it doesn't end there because he looks at the woman and he says, stop what you're doing. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. And so again, in this interaction, we find Jesus being very, very honest by many of our cultural standards, and certainly by ancient honor-shame cultural standards, what he's doing is uncomfortable. It's awkward. There's probably a lot of people nervously wiggling around in that crowd watching this interaction. And yet he was kind to the woman. He extended mercy and compassion to her. But he didn't lighten her sin. He didn't downplay the wrong. He just simply said, stop. I don't condemn you. You're free to go. But stop what you're doing. Now, for the sake of time, we're coming up on the 730 mark. Hopefully, we've got some people beginning to submit questions or comments. I challenge you over the next few days to think through and even spend some extra time reading in the Gospels again. And what you will find over and over and over again is that Jesus interacted with people, especially when they were publicans, or depending on the translation you read, it may be tax collectors, when they were prostitutes, when they were other people of ill repute, and he was kind to them. It's interesting in the story, I don't have time to read it, where Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house, and he sits down to eat, and this woman, scripture makes it clear, this woman of ill repute, this woman of a bad, repu uh, bad reputation, the strong, strong implication there culturally is that she was a prostitute. 
and she comes in while they're eating and they didn't eat in chairs sitting upright like we do. They reclined kind of at a low lying table and kind of leaned on their side and they ate down low to the ground. So his feet are stretched out behind him. And this woman comes in and she begins kissing his feet and she begins pouring oil on his feet. And then she begins to cry and wipe his feet with her hair. And I don't care how you want to dress this up. It's awkward. And to be really blunt, it's sensual. And everybody is shocked by this. And Jesus turns around and forgives her. And the whole dinner party has no idea what to make of this situation. Even his disciples are stunned. Certainly the Pharisees. And in talking of the woman, go back and read it later. He said, her sins are many, but I've forgiven them. Jesus did not say, oh, it's okay. She's not really what you think. Jesus didn't say, no, it's not really that bad. He flat out said, this woman has a lot of baggage. She's made a lot of bad decisions. Her sins are many, but I have forgiven them. Think of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. If you don't understand the way tax collecting worked in that day, the Roman government would take over an area and then they would appoint local people from that community to collect taxes for the Roman government. And they would give them the backing of the military, Roman soldiers to go enforce this tax collection. And what they told them was that you must collect X amount of taxes from everyone. Anything you collect over and above and beyond that, that's yours to keep, but you got to give us this much. And they didn't set a limit on how much basically these tax collectors could extort from the people. And if people would not pay their taxes, the tax collectors could call in military soldier support to force people to pay. And you couldn't argue with the tax collector. The only caveat from the Roman government was if you charge too much and the people riot, that's on you and we're coming after your head. So in other words, you can extort the people, but you know, do it within reason to the point where they won't riot. And Zacchaeus is called the chief tax collector, and he's very rich. How is he rich? He's gotten rich in essence by stealing from his community, extorting money out of them. He's a traitor to the nation, and he's hated. And Jesus is kind to this man and says, salvation has come to your house today. Zacchaeus, I want to come have dinner with you. It's crazy. I could keep going. And Joyce, if you want to join me, hopefully by now we've got some comments or questions. You just begin to think through the Gospels and over and over and over again. You're going to see all these different examples. Think of Jesus speaking to a Roman centurion and healing his servant. Again, this is the outsider. This is the invading military force. There's martial law in the land of Israel. And he's going to go talk to a military officer and be kind to him. It's craziness. Think of the Syrophoenician woman. And Jesus says, I haven't come for you or your people. And in fact, what sounds like an incredible cultural diss to us, he talks about the food for the table and the children is not meant for dogs. And her response is that, but even the dogs get the crumbs. And I think there was a twinkle in Jesus' eye personally as he smiles and he says, well said, I'll grant your request. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, this lady has more faith than all of you. Over and over and over and over and over, I could keep going. There's many examples where Jesus was incredibly direct with people. But he did it with compassion and mercy and kindness. And as Christians, when we interact with people, as the Spirit guides us and gives us wisdom in what to say, we need to find that balance of kindness and honesty, where as we interact with people, we don't in an effort to be kind, hide the truth. And likewise, we don't deliver the truth without any sort of mercy or kindness. What good is it to tell a lost world that they're going to burn if there's no hope? If you feel that evangelizing is nothing but telling people how wrong they are and how condemned they are, you've missed the point. On the flip side, if out of a heart of compassion, as you talk to people, we tell them all they have to do is love Jesus and their lifestyle doesn't have to change. We've done them just as much of a disservice. So Christianity calls us to some very challenging things. One of them being this balancing act of both kindness and honesty. All right, Joyce, 
have we got any comments or questions? Has anybody submitted anything yet? Mm -hmm. So as okay. it comes to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, mm -hmm. and Jesus says to her accusers, you know, thing about casting stones, um, what do you, how do you think he would have reacted had they stayed, you know, and acted as if they had not sinned at all? How would they have acted? Okay, since you said, what do I think? I will share my opinion, but hear me state up front. This is my opinion because it's not in scripture. So I'm just giving you my take on this. So you can take it with a grain of salt. If you don't like it, throw it out. doesn't matter. If you do like it, honestly, it still doesn't really matter because it's not scripture. I'm just giving you my opinion. I personally believe that when Jesus wrote in the dust, he was beginning to write information, and he was beginning to list sins. This is my personal belief. I cannot prove this in Scripture, but I believe that he was writing down shameful acts, sinful things that this group of accusers had committed. Now, did he write their names next to it? I don't know, but he's just simply writing what they're doing in the dust, my belief, and as they see it, it's telling them, I know who you are. I know what you've done. At a minimum, we know that Jesus knows what they've done because he stands up and he looks at them and it says they kept pestering him. So understand this goes on for a little while. This isn't something that happens in a 30 second exchange. How long did he stoop down and kind of doodle in the dust? We don't know, but I'm guessing it's several minutes. I said, come on, give us an answer. And he's not responding. He's not saying anything. So when he finally stands up and he looks at them and he says, all right, boys. Cast the first stone, the one of you who has no sin. You go first. You have to understand something about public executions. As brutal and nasty as they were, they were also a community event. It's not like one person was appointed to execute someone by stoning. When someone was stoned, they were dragged outside the city. And the whole crowd threw rocks at the person until they died. And so this group of accusers brings this lady to Jesus, demanding that he decide whether or not they get to execute her. And his response is, well, go ahead, cast the first stone, the one without sin. And then he goes back to writing in the dust, so he continues to do whatever he's doing. So I don't think there was any chance of them staying. I think he would have continued to write personally. I think he would have gotten more direct if he needed to. This is an honor-shame culture where it's very much about public displays of authority. And so when you challenge someone in a public setting like this, they're not alone. They're in the middle of a big crowd in the temple grounds. The temple is not one building. It's a whole complex of buildings and structures. It was the size of about 40 square acres. So think something the size of, say, like a county fair. This is a huge complex with thousands and thousands of people in and out of it every day. At religious holiday, holy festival times, hundreds of thousands of people. So there are plenty of people milling about. This is not a private interaction. This is as public as public gets. And they're challenging Jesus' authority. They're trying to embarrass him in front of everyone else. And he turns the table on their heads. And so I, I don't think the interaction would have continued much longer. But had, for a hypothetical sake, let's say had these men continued to stay there, I think he would have continued to write, and I think he would have continued to get more and more direct, recognizing that they didn't want to escalate the conflict further and become even more embarrassed in front of this crowd. It says they begin slipping away. And in my mind, I kind of see them just sort of, you know, melting, stepping backwards and melting back into the crowd and trying to fade out and get away before Jesus starts getting more explicit and direct. The story makes it clear that he's not speaking. He's just writing. So unless you've got a front row seat to whatever he's writing on the crowd, on the ground, the crowd doesn't clearly see what Jesus is doing, just that he's writing something. What if he opens his mouth and he starts directly stating their own sins and shames? They don't, they don't want that to happen. So that, that's why I don't think it would have gone any farther. But had it gone farther, I think Jesus would have, for lack of a better word, just upped the ante and shamed them even more publicly. Does that, does that work? <laughs> it works. Okay, so I am combining two questions here because they're kind of alike, huh? just handling two sure. separate things. So how, okay. how do you show kindness 
to those who have been, you know, they're talking behind your back, they're being really nasty, very unchristian-like, um, they've sown discord. But what about those who have even gone as far as to abuse your kids, like mentally or verbally? How do you show kindness to them and yet acknowledge the misconduct? That can be very hard. I'm not going to skirt around this or say, oh, well, you just, you know, I can give you the easy answers. And they're like, oh, we'll just pray more for them. Well, okay. And you should pray for people, but that doesn't involve your interaction. My personality type is I tend to avoid conflict if I can. I really, really, really don't want a conflict. Now, I'm not going to avoid it at all costs at the detriment of harm. I'm not going to avoid a conflict to the point where it gets totally out of proportion and causes more destruction. But conflict tends to be my last resort. So what I'm about to say is not even easy for me. But if this is someone that you're going to continue to have to interact with, whether it's in a work environment or a school environment, maybe it's a neighbor, it's something you can't totally avoid. Number one, you do pray for these people. Scripture, Jesus clearly said that we are to pray for our enemies and to show kindness to them. One of the ways we show kindness is that we don't retaliate. So unlike the eye for eye, tooth for tooth philosophy, Jesus comes along and he says, no, 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 no. When they slap you on the cheek, you turn the other one. When they ask for help, you extend it. When they need food, you feed them. Go the extra mile. That expression comes out of that idea that a Roman soldier could ask anyone to carry their pack with all their equipment for a stadia, what we would call close to the idea of a mile. And instead, Jesus says, no, 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 you don't just do that. Go double. Do an extra stretch of road, an extra mile if you get asked to do that. You show kindness in your interactions and how you're not retaliatory. And here's where the truth part comes in. Let's say you're a parent and you need to deal with another parent or adult who has been unkind to your child, or you need to be a parent and you need to deal with another child who has been unkind to your child. Especially if you interact with them, likely it's going to escalate to their parent. But at some point you are perfectly within your rights as a parent to confront that situation and say, X, Y, Z happened. And I don't appreciate the way that you're treating my child. This is not acceptable. I don't want X, Y, Z behavior to happen anymore. You need to stop what you're doing. That's the truth part. You confront it. You don't threaten them. You don't tell them, you know, that you're going to call the cops and try and get them arrested. I mean, if they're causing violence to your children, then yes, get law enforcement involved if you have to. If they're just simply rude and mean to your children, you can tell them this kind of behavior is not acceptable and that's not okay. But you don't return an insult to them. You don't call them a little punk. You don't call them some dirty name or something like that. You just simply confront the bad behavior and say, this is not okay. But I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And for whatever reason you acted this way, I hope that you're all right. Usually bullies are not bullies just for the sport and the fun of it. There's something else going on in their environment. It's almost guaranteed they come from a broken home themselves. Something's very wrong in their environment. And if we can look past what's immediately in front of us, oftentimes you can see that pain. You think of that jerk that you know that you have to deal with at work or your neighbor or fill in the blank scenario whatever it is that extended family member who's just foul and sour and mean and grumpy and nasty to everyone they've got a miserable life themselves sometimes just simply smiling and speaking in a calm tone and being civil to someone diffuses a situation just not, they get up in your face, you know, and they're, they're getting aggressive and they're getting louder and you don't get louder. You take a deep breath and you speak to them in a normal tone. It tends to diffuse most situations and you show kindness simply by not retaliating. You show kindness simply by not responding in kind to the way that they are treating you.
Now, what I'm saying is not easy. Please, please don't mistake me for saying, oh, that's fine. That's simple. Just do X, Y, Z. This takes a lot of self-control. <laughs> You're going to need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Pray as you interact with them. Who says you can't talk to someone and be talking to God at the same time? And asking God for guidance and asking that the Holy Spirit would help you to know what to say. So does that does that kind of get at it? It does. That question, did I miss? No, you didn't miss it. Um, but that would basically also apply if the person is an ex-spouse. Yeah, so let's say it's a difficult family situation. Let's move beyond. You asked me about kids. So let's talk about an interaction that you have to deal with another person who continues to make things difficult for you. I wish I'd understood this principle earlier when I was a younger Christian. At one point, I worked for someone in my mid-20s who was very, very difficult. And she made my life extremely difficult at work and, and seemed... I, I don't know to this day, I don't know what it was that I did, but I had I had done something at some point that grievously upset her. This was a director I worked for when I worked for the school district. I had multiple bosses and only one of them was like this. But at this time that I worked for this lady, it was very, very difficult. And in hindsight, older me wishes younger me at some point had been able to talk to her, come to her office and say, I won't say her name, but so-and-so person, I'm not sure what I have done to upset you, but it seems that our interactions are getting more and more tense and that I seem to be upsetting you with the quality of my work or the way I engage you or whatever it may be. And if I have done something to offend you, if I have done something to upset you, I don't know what it is, but I want to apologize and make it right. And, and what can I do to help fix this situation? So I take ownership on my part and then see how they respond. And maybe you can have a good conversation. Maybe you can't. Maybe they shut it down or they respond harshly or angrily. There's a truth part. They can look at them and say, and this is something I also wish older me was able to say to younger me. Because when she would lose her temper and snap and yell, there's a part of me now, I wouldn't take that. 25-year-old me would, not, not me now. Say, it's not acceptable for you to talk to me that way. That's demeaning. And I am not a child. And you cannot speak to me that way. Now, what can we do to work this out? And again, you don't respond in kind, but you can be direct. And you can deal with this. You're dealing with a family member in some tense situation. I've had to do this before with family members where I came to them and I had to confront them with some behavior and say, when you did X, Y, Z, that was not okay because of these reasons and it made me feel this way and it hurt these people and when you said or when you did fill in the blank it caused this kind of reaction and these are the consequences and this is not acceptable and i want to have a relationship with you but if you continue to behave in this manner you are going to limit our interactions because it's not going to work and if you continue to do xyz my communication with you is going to be limited down to fill in the blank you don't call them a dirty name you don't insult them you don't question their character you just simply state the facts a lot of being honest and this is hard but is to not get emotional and if you can't stay rational and you just deal with the issue at hand this behavior happened this was the result of that this is unacceptable. I don't like it when this happened. You cannot do X, Y, Z. We don't live in a totalitarian environment. We're not under martial law or military state. There's not an oppressive government regime that, that keeps us from expressing ourselves. Um, we have at will work. You know, you work for someone. You don't have to continue in some horribly abusive job situation. And so we're fortunate that in our environment, we're able to confront. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy. It's incredibly brave. And those conversations, I'm, I'm being vague on purpose, but in interacting with extended family members or with um, job situations, a few times I've had to do it. Oh, I wanted to throw up. But it was still what was needed. 
and that direct intervention, I can think of at least two of those times where having that very, very direct conversation without being ugly and just simply stating the facts cause the other person to pause and to rethink their behavior. Well, here's another question. And I know I personally sure. struggle with this because it's all about huh? balance. So yeah. what suggestions can you give to help us develop the actual balance between honesty and kindness? So the first suggestion and this is probably the easiest, and this is part of the reason we're doing this Bible study tonight, is to just look in Scripture. A greatest example is we find in Jesus in the Gospels, but he's not the only example. What kind of examples do you see in the Scripture? What kind of personal notes can you take from them and learn from this behavior? Secondly, I would say is that you spend time talking to God and you ask for wisdom and guidance. If you're struggling with this balance of honesty and kindness— and you're likely thinking of a very specific scenario and you don't know what to do in that scenario, then ask God to give you wisdom and give you guidance on how to do it. Ask the Lord to help you to speak truth. Paul said in Ephesians that we are to speak the truth in love. That's another way of saying you must marry honesty with kindness. And so you ask God for help with that. When you're in a situation and all of a sudden it becomes intense, you can pray on the spot. Talk to God in your mind. It doesn't mean you have to drop to your knees and fold your hands and pray out loud right then. You can interact. And there have been times where I've been interacting with someone. And yet at the same time, I was talking to God and saying, God, give me guidance. I, I need help right now. Pray and ask God for courage. That's a part of it especially if it's a long-term situation that has not gone well. And you may have to ask God multiple times to help you to have the courage to confront this individual and this behavior that's causing this rift. Sometimes you may find, sometimes you may find that it's not as bad in reality as what you've let it become in your mind, because that can be a trick of the devil also to play things up and to let them fester and to whisper to us and to make it bigger than it seems. Sometimes, now I'm not downplaying things. There are times where there are genuine problems, abusive situations, other things that are not helpful. But I can think even in my adult Christian life of interacting, I remember one time interacting with another minister and this minister came back to me later and I had made some comment and it was a comment made in innocence and I didn't mean anything by it. It was in no way at all meant to insult that other minister. But because of their own background and their own history and what they were struggling with, the way they interpreted it, they heard it as something completely different. And it had been bothering them for a while. So they asked to speak to me. And so they arranged a time to come and talk to me face to face. And I, I had no clue this was coming and what was going on. And when this minister came and talked to me and said, you know, do you remember this interaction so many weeks ago? You said this. And when you said that, it made me feel such and such a way. And it made me think of fill in the blank thing. I was mortified. I had no idea they had received it that way. That's not at all what I intended. And immediately on the spot, I said, you know what? I am so sorry. I apologized. I took ownership for it. I said, that is not what I intended. I'm so sorry it made you feel that way. That's not what I wanted to happen. See, this is this biblical idea of conflict resolution. And we were able to immediately work it out. And after that time, our relationship was better. It actually strengthened our relationship rather than deteriorating our relationship. Because this person was willing to come to talk to me about something that had happened. And something I had said to this person that I in no way had meant to be harmful or hurting or insulting. But again, because of their own history and some past experiences, the way they heard it was not what I intended. And so I apologize. And we were able to make it right. So there are times where you may be faced with a conflict scenario where it calls on you to be honest and kind. And you may find that once you get into it, actually, it's okay. And the other person is happy to resolve it too. It's not always an explosive scenario. In the examples I gave out of the scriptures, what we see is Jesus dealing with non-believers or people who are actively involved in a life of sin. They're not living as disciples of Christ in the two examples that we read and this. And Jesus did not excuse their behavior. 
He didn't make their behavior acceptable, and yet he was still kind to them, and he offered them a way out. He didn't insult them. He didn't, now here's a key, he didn't shame them when he interacted with them. He didn't back down from the behavior, and he called what was wrong, wrong. But he didn't do it in a way that was meant to demean the person. And learning to do that takes time and godly wisdom and guidance. So ask God to give you the courage to confront these situations when you need to. Read the scriptures to find good, positive examples. And pray that God would give you wisdom to know what to say at the appropriate time. That's what I would tell someone to do. Well, someone wants to know, why was she kissing Jesus' feet? Okay, I'm not sure that I can fully answer this question or unpack it at this time. It's a fair question. It was an intimate act. It was an act of mercy. It was an act of, of showing that person as superior to them. And she was extending in her own way, broken or not, honor to Jesus. And she was extending to him this idea of him being greater than her. And Jesus met her where she was at. That's another fascinating thing about this story. We don't read that, you know, like he jerks up or jumps up from the table and says, get away from me, woman. What are you doing? He lets her do this and he understands her intent. The Gospel of John talks about how Jesus understood people's hearts, something we can't do. That's part of the reason we need the guidance of the Holy Spirit, because we can only see the outward action. We can't know what's in the heart. He understood what was in the woman's heart, regardless of whether or not the action was appropriate or it looked bad. And it certainly looked bad. Understand, you got to read some between the lines, but you just go back. There's no good way to imagine a scenario where Jesus is at a dinner party and he's having dinner with all these religious officials. And this woman shows up and she has a reputation in town already. And she takes this very expensive bottle of perfume and she pours it on his feet and she begins kissing his feet and she begins crying and washing his feet with her tears and rubbing her hair on his, like you dress it up any way you want. It's sensual, it's uncomfortable, it's super awkward. And everybody at the table is watching Jesus and they're thinking, if you knew who this woman really was, you would not let her touch you. And yet in this interaction, Jesus did know exactly who that woman was, but he knew her heart and what she was intending by it. And he turned around and he said, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And he extended to her what she was looking for. He didn't embarrass her. He didn't demean her. There have been times in my interactions with people who were making their way towards Christ and they did not even understand the full weight of their actions. I personally think it, it makes me smile. There are times when I talk to people and take it as a compliment, by the way. If you can talk to someone and they're not like us and they don't come from our background, right? And they're standing there and they're cursing a blue streak as they tell you this story. Or they're talking about their own interaction. And they're using language that would make your mama blush that you don't use at all. And yet they're just talking away and it means nothing to them. And I almost smirk because I think they, they feel comfortable talking to me, being themselves. I remember one of the greatest joys of my adult ministry life is there was a man that I had a chance who came into Christianity, became my friend. I had a chance to do Bible studies with this guy. And he said, you know what, why don't you meet me after work? And he gave me a restaurant. And several times I went and I met him at this restaurant and we sat down and we had dinner together. And the whole time I was giving him a Bible study and answering his questions, he's sitting there knocking back beers, asking me questions. He has no clue, right? He's not coming from a Christian back. I was not upset with him. It made me, it still makes me smile when I think of that story. He made his way in and he cleaned up his life. And later on, years later, he came back to me and he goes, do you know when you first met me and we sat down into those Bible studies, I was just sitting there drinking my beer the whole time. I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. And he just shook his head in disbelief. He's like, what was I doing? You know, now he's embarrassed by his previous life. But at the time, that was one of the times I feel like I got it right, and I really was doing it in that balance of kindness and honesty because I met him where he was at, and I didn't be, I didn't condemn his behavior. I did not sit down with this man as we ordered dinner, and then he ordered his bud and look at him and go, what are you doing? You can't drink. Don't you know I'm a preacher? What if someone saw me sitting at this table with you with all these beer bottles on it? 
He doesn't have that frame of reference. He doesn't live that way. You meet people where they're at. Here's a mature Christian response. You cannot expect someone who does not live like you, who does not know what you know, who is not a disciple of Christ to act like you. Why should you be shocked when they sit down and their language is foul? Why should you be shocked when they respond in an unchristian way? They're not Christians yet. So don't condemn them for that. Meet them where they're at. And in the story of Jesus, going back to that woman kissing his feet and washing his feet with her tears and her hair and all of that, he met her where, was it okay? Not really. Was it awkward? Totally awkward. Was it embarrassing? I'm sure it was embarrassing. But he understood her heart and her intention by it. And he met her at the level she was at. And with the guidance, you cannot do this on your own. You cannot know people's hearts. So you need the Spirit to guide you and direct you. But with the guidance of the Spirit, we have to learn to be sensitive to what God is directing us to. And we meet people at the level they're at. Well, I know it's 8 o'clock. Do we have time for one more? I'll take another one. Go ahead, Joyce. Okay. Are we wrong if we choose to just avoid people who are mean, angry, rude, etc.? Um, if we pray for them from a distance? There have been times, good question. Okay, so there have been times in my life where I've had to do that. Okay, and so you pray for someone. You got a strained family relationship. I, in my own family, right? With extended family members and etc. I can think of one where I have a strained relationship with someone. And it hurts deeply. And when I think about it, I can get upset real quickly. And when I do, I have to take a breath and I have to step back and I pray for that person. And I ask God to help them. And, 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 and there have been times, even recently, where I thought of this individual and I said, God, I don't know what to do in this situation. I, I don't know how to fix this. Because at this point, communication is so broken with this individual, I wouldn't even know how to reach out to them if they'd even take the phone call or respond or return the call, right? So sometimes you may be in a situation where the only thing you can do is pray for that person. And that may be all that's available to you. But sincerely pray and ask God, God, help me with my heart. Don't let me get bitter. Help me to forgive this person. Here's another life lesson for you. Forgiveness is not a one-time act. Okay? Especially with deep, long-standing hurts. We forgive memories one at a time. And sometimes we have to forgive that memory more than once. And maybe all you can do is pray for that individual. But if you have the chance to interact with them. And you can do it without causing harm to you. You're in an abusive relationship. You're you're in an environment where someone's going to hurt you. You don't need, you know, to purposely put yourself in harm's way, whether that's verbal or physical or whatever. But if you can interact with the person and you can extend kindness to them, you'd be amazed at how much that can diffuse. You got a child dealing with a bully you want to diffuse a situation, throw someone for a loop, have that bully insult you, and you turn around and you smile and you compliment them. See what that does. And they throw another insult and you find another compliment. And they throw another insult and you say thank you and you don't rise to the bait. You can't go anywhere with that. It's really, really, really hard to continue to insult someone who's kind in return and who's complimentary and civil in return. It just totally sucks the wind out of the sails. You insult someone in dealing with a bully situation, right? And you're demeaning and you're meaning and you try to embarrass them publicly because that grants you power over them. If they're kind to you in response and they compliment you back, and they find some nice thing to say and they continue to smile at you, you have no power over them. You have deflated the demeaning behavior. But you need God's wisdom and guidance to do that. All right, Joyce, any more? I mean, we're a couple minutes past the hour. I think we're going to shut this down because I know our youth class needs to start in just a moment. But Good. I think we hit them all. We hit them all. Excellent. 
Newark family, thank you so much for joining us for our live Wednesday night broadcast. I hope and pray that you chew on, think on these things, read the scriptures, read through the life of Jesus, see his example, and how he managed to find that balance of kindness and honesty. That's what we're called to do. That, by the way, is how you reach a lost world. You don't scream at them truth without any mercy or grace, and you don't extend so much mercy and grace that no one needs to change their behavior. It takes both. But at that crossing point, that nexus where kindness and honesty interact through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that is where God can use you to reach a broken world. Thank you for joining us tonight. Be sure to tune in tomorrow night at 7 p.m. for our evening broadcast. If you're new to us, you can find all kinds of information about us, our online small groups, our online services. You can submit prayer requests. You can partner with us in giving. You can submit baptism requests. All of that can be done on our website at newarkupc.info. So thank you once again for joining. God bless you all and have a good night.